I just commented a little bit about that and I wanted you know to have you come back on and talk a little bit more about machine learning and computational models. Yeah, I mean, I'd be happy to, um, you know, further in depth about it. Um, I mean, I've only done one actual project in the, you know, computational material science and then using machine learning to uh, kind of speed up that process. But um, is there anything, I guess, specific that you'd like me to address? Um, just kind of, you know, just go through the whole process that you went through. Uh, because there's a lot of computational data that's out there. And I'm wondering, you know, it seems like that there are people who are now starting to say, hey, we could be, you know, try to cover all of our space using the computational method. Or mm -hmm. we can take, let's say, 60% of it or 70% of the computational model and then let the machine kind of fill in the blanks, almost like... Uh, image recognition where, you, you know, you have like fuzzy, fuzzy images, but the machine uh, clear, makes it really clear because it, it starts to uh, uh, make predictions on what the image should look, look, look like. So uh, that's kind of where I'm thinking that this interest in this computational model is coming from is that uh, some of the users are looking at it and saying, hey, we've got data, can we, can we apply a machine learning algorithm and uh, make some predictions just on based on our data. Right, and um, yeah, that's that's pretty much that's a uh, a huge um, uh, effort in the materials science uh, community is yeah creating data sets using you know the traditional computational technique. Um, they're slow, but they're more accurate, and then using machine learning to predict the rest of the computational space. And in doing that, they are able to, um, yeah, significantly expedite their uh, materials discovery process. So, you know, you, yeah, you have some kind of huge space that you want to explore. So, for example, there's this one uh, research group, this one paper. I, I don't recall where they're from, but they wanted to explore uh, uh, trinary compounds. So that's compounds of just three elements. And they wanted to look at pretty much the whole periodic table. And there are, you know, hundreds of thousands of different combinations that you can do. So what they did wow. is, yes, yeah, so what they did is they used, um, they used traditional computational techniques such as uh, density functional theory to uh, minimize the geometry of uh, maybe 10,000 different combinations or maybe more. And that took, you know, a huge amount of time to do that. And then using that data, they optimized ge the geometry, found the stability of the structure, and then they were able to use machine learning to um, uh, predict the rest of the trinary compounds, I, something like, you know, a million or so compounds in, you know, a matter of minutes instead of taking literally millions of years. You know, to that computational. Yeah, see, it's that kind of uh, thinking that's really amazing is uh, – that, you know, things that would approach it that would take linearly if you did it the, just in a linear manner, manual it, manner, it would take uh, a long time. Yeah. But where these deep neural nets and deep learning and uh, machine learning 
uh, are great is that they can actually discover f of x. So yeah. <laughs> uh, I was reading that Google had started to prove some of their math theories, and they're just using machine learning to do that. So uh, that's an interesting correlation that that study uh, had found that they could find the, the gaps. Yeah, yeah, that was, uh, that's what they were all about is finding those gaps um, or estimating those gaps, you know, and they'll never have a perfect, you know, uh, f of x function or something. But, you know, in the end, it's all predictions. But, yeah, I believe their accuracy was around, you know, 80 percent, which is uh, really high. I mean, it's not classification, it's regression. So I think, they, okay, I forgot what exact metric they used to uh, validate how they were doing it might have been something like r squared but basically like you know a score of one would be perfect and then zero would be no match at all so 0.8 80 percent is really good yeah and you, and you know if you think about it in three-dimensional space you know it's it, we we're talking geometries and curve fitting and uh curve fitting all is a function of you know like whether you're using a binomial curve fit or if you're using a numerical convergence uh it's going to be some type of system that's trying to approximate anyway and uh so that we introduce the machine learning which uh it it's doing you know approximation and if it can get within like you said 80 percent uh you know how how much time and effort does that save in terms of you know, business model. Right. Yeah. Huge amount of time. And I think the important thing is to remember that, you know, the machine learning, it's best used as a compass to, you know, kind of guide where you want to take the research or where you want to take, you know, the, the more, um, uh, burdening, I guess, techniques. So, you know, you, you want to use machine learning to kind of guide where you're going and then you want to go back to your computational techniques or something that, you know, takes a full in-depth uh, study later after you do the mm. machine learning to kind of, you know, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. This, so that, that's a, that's a good strategy. Uh, you know, uh, it's almost like a triage, right? Yeah. So you do, you run a, you run a high level uh, machine learning uh, approach over the large data set since it's so fast you know you've gone from you know millions of years to you know a few minutes uh, now you've got some sectors that you've now identified as uh, areas that might be interesting and now you can run the longer computational models and geometries against those, that particular sector so you're more focused right yeah that's exactly and, and it's yeah. kind of like yeah you kind of like partition off the problem and then let the machine try to help you through which partition might have something of interest for you. And then that sector becomes an area where you can, you can put lots of resource to get your fine tuning. Right. That's exactly it. That's what's been, uh, well, that's what, that's what's uh, being done in a lot of different fields in computational uh, material science and other computational fields as well. I believe things, methods. Uh, you know what? It's like, uh, I think it's almost like linear algebra. Remember how linear algebra, you could take systems of equations and then you could run them through matrices transformations and you would get, you know, solutions, right? Mm -hmm. And, uh, 
and those are always really great because those solutions usually uh, were either trivial or non-trivial solutions. And if you got you got a solution that worked, um, it was very mechanical. So you could then do things like you could program it. You could you do things like uh, uh, you could do neural nets. And, you know, a large part of neural nets were from linear systems. So I'm sure like there's got to be you know, a science, you could probably say, oh, well, this makes total sense because, you know, we're, you're working with systems of equations and stuff, and neural nets are basically systems of equations, too. Um, yeah. So, can you walk us through kind of like how you set up the machine learning algorithm? Did you go through... It does you did figure out how did you figure out the features? Yeah, so feature extraction is definitely the most difficult part in the process. So, um, first, I guess what I did is I looked at, you know, I read the literature, I got some idea of what was being done, and a lot of the time, what um, they use is just pure composition. So, what elements are in your material? and um, which elements are next to other elements and things like that. And using purely composition, you can get already pretty good results in whatever you're um, trying to predict. Just because if you have enough data, you can, and I think the machine learning algorithm, uh, I use the random forest regressor. And um, what that is, it's the decision tree uh, algorithm that is shown to be really good in lots of different fields as well and um so yeah my feature is uh mainly comprised of just composition so what elements are actually in the material and what that random force regressor will then do is find other materials in the the data set the training data set and it will kind of match which materials are most similar based on composition and that so yeah. Oh, Scott, sorry. I, I, I wanted to go back to that random force that you were t tree algorithm. Mm -hmm. uh, what was the decisions that were being made? So we were talking about uh, elements that are in close proximity to each other. What were the decisions that it made? Uh, so if it, you know, if it was one way, then it did something. At, and if it was another, then it did another thing. Can you give an example like... Uh, yeah what were the decisions it was trying to make? So let's say uh, one, maybe one decision node could be if there are more than, you know, five molybdenum in your material, maybe it will guide the, the decision tree more towards stability, whether, you know, oh. compared to if there's less than five molybdenum or something. And, you know, that's, that's a really simple example because, you know, those decision trees are really complex so, you know, there could be, I don't know how many nodes, you know, thousands, I guess. I'm not really sure. You know, the one problem with the um, random force regressor is it's kind of a black box model in a way and where you don't really know what's going on entirely. There are ways to kind of get information out of that model, but um, you have to put in quite a bit more work to find out how a decision was made. But... um did uh, did you did you uh, were your original assumptions on your features correct or did 
after using the random forest tree model, uh, you started realizing, hey, these there's some features here that are more significant than others, so I need to pay attention to those. Yeah, definitely. That was a big part in why we wanted to do the machine learning as well, is to find what features were most important uh, when trying to predict the stability. And there were definitely some things um, such as, uh, you know, we thought originally, you know, we could take the average like atomic weight of uh, each element in the material. Well, of the whole material. So let's say there's like 20 elements in this material that you're studying. You want, if we take like the average atomic weight of all of those elements, we thought that that would have a pretty good predictor for stability. We thought that maybe, you know, the higher the atomic weight, the more stable the structure would be. However, we found like no correlation that that help didn't help the uh, random force regressor at all, you know? So that was really interesting. And then actually a lot of, uh, kind of more physical attributes didn't really help our algorithm or our machine learning model that much. So we looked at like, you know, physical attributes. When I say that, I mean like electronegativity, atomic weight, um, you know, what rows they're on in the periodic table, how many electrons these had, like average electrons in the material and things like that. They actually didn't really help our model. Well, like helped our model most, what we found is just purely composition which is kind of like abstract ideas, you know, like how many elements are in that uh, structure, you know, like of a certain type, mm. which is kind of like an, it's not like a physical attribute to that system. Um, it's more like a abstract attribute to that system. So, it, yeah, so we couldn't, which was kind of unfortunate because one of our, goals was if we could find some physical you know um predictors of you know stability then that means we could really explore outside of our composition space so for example out of the computations that we performed on all these different materials we only stuck to maybe um 10 or 15 elements and if you don't use any physical attributes of those elements you can't get accurate predictions on anything outside of those 10 or 15 elements you know so let's say out of the materials that we're looking at if we have 15 elements we're able to generate you know 1500 structures let's say for example wow and we only do like computational calculations on 500 of those and then we use machine learning to predict the other 1000 do you get where i'm going with this kind of yeah so then if we, efficient yeah efficient and if we were able to somehow bring out physical characteristics um, in our machine learning model and not use any composition then we could explore you know like potentially tens of thousands of different materials because then we're not tied down to just those abstract ideas of just you know how many elements of a certain type are in there now we can t tie it down to like an average atomic weight you know, because every element mm. has an atomic weight in the periodic elements are there, like maybe a hundred or so. So that's kind of an interesting. Um, I don't even know what you call it, kind of uh, science, I guess, in the whole machine learning process is where if you can, if you're looking at physical, if you're trying to predict physical attributes, you know, such as stability of a system, 
if you're able to tie that down to physical properties of your material, like real physical things such as atomic weight, electronegativity, then you can explore materials way outside of what your composition space. So would then would that then become like a recipe, uh, almost uh, like a high level recipe, and then those become borders. Uh, so then you would look at other materials that would fit within those borders of electromagnetivity and atomic weight, and uh, make predictions on them without even doing the computational method against it right yeah you could potentially do that and the thing is you wouldn't need really any borders because if you can find some relationship between physical characteristics that are um you know things like atomic weight that's a continuous variable you know you can have okay you can have as you know you know atomic weight can be infinite technically you could technically predict materials that have elements that don't even really naturally exist because atomic weight, you know, the, um, the most basic elements like hydrogen are very light, but really complex elements like uranium are like very heavy. So you could potentially, you know, take that atomic weight variable and extend it to infinity. I mean, it would be very impractical, but you could theoretically do it. If you were to develop a good model that uh, takes into account those physical weight than to predict the um pro- the stability of the structure etc and um if you're able to tie that model down physical attributes then you can predict basically infinitely many number of uh possible materials or structures yeah that sounds pretty exciting that's yeah. a an interesting approach right to have uh you know of grass you know those are like the things that you, you write your your thesis up on right and uh as long as you, i guess you can defend it which you would have then a good data sampling to show and then you could build some models uh based on those physical characteristic properties mm-hmm. that show predictions uh, maybe that'd be really interesting maybe we won't have the capability right now to actually verify it but uh possibly you know down the in the future to have the technology to verify and they go, wow, he was ahead of his time. You know, he was able to make these predictions, but you know, just based on properties. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's, um, I mean, there, there's already been work done on, you know, tying down these models to physical properties of the system. It's really more about if you can do it or not. And, you know, I guess, theoretically, you know, all of these systems, all their properties are tied down to real physical attributes. It's just, um, you know, the machine learning model, I'm, you know, what's actually happening, happening in that structure, it's all really complicated quantum physical things, you know, that are happening. And to try to replace that with some machine learning model, I mean, it's just, sometimes it's just impossible. So it really comes down to whether or not those physical properties can predict uh, whatever you're trying to predict in that structure or not. So did you use any of the physical properties like in your, your uh, test data right. uh, as kind of like negative 
results. So in other words, you wanted to make sure the net, uh, the, the machine learning was uh, identifying false positives. Um, did you do anything like that? I don't think I did anything like that. So you're saying to identify false positives by using yeah, so, physical treatment? Right. Uh, well, so what I was just thinking uh, about the features, you know, one of the things I've noticed with machine learning is sometimes you have to show it contrast hmm. in order for it to be able to converge properly. Um, so, so like, for example, if, if uh, you know, in, the, in uh, image recognition, if it were, you were trying to get it to uh, the neural net to recognize a license plate, for example, uh-huh. uh, you know, it can detect the edge detection, which would be a border. It can then classify uh, rectangles and then it can, you know, see, determine that there's text and it says, oh, okay, I, I recognize that as a license plate. Uh, but then you show it, a, you know, a, um, a, like a um, a post and it's a square post and it thinks that might be a license plate too because it's rectangular oh, okay. so you see what i'm saying is just so identifying false positives in your test right i mean that's definitely interesting um something we could explore i'm, I'm just curious as how we would do that in our data set just because it's pretty um all of our features are pretty abstract and yeah, it would be difficult to do something like that, but yeah, it's definitely something we could explore is identifying those false positives and seeing why it chose, you know, to give it a positive value, even though. It yeah, it's it's kind of one of those things where I, when I've discovered what working with machine learning is uh, that it was really good at converging on things like uh, that were known and you had good rules like you have your decision trees and then you got it to check to see what is it did it properly analyze the decision did it go did it identify you know st- as a stable material based on the geometry or did it identify it as non-stable and why did it identify this as non-stable did it maybe it missed some certain features and so then you you know you retrain it and try to get it to identify those features that's missing right yeah that's definitely um it's definitely a good approach to take you know in any kind of machine learning task you know identify why it's predicting something wrong why it's predicting something right you know all of that is very important i definitely agree this is real interesting uh, what any other insights that you had uh on the computational models um, I know you said it was just one project that you worked on, but it sounded like it was a very successful project. I mean, I believe it's as a, a successful project. It'll you know be up to the uh, publishers and editors to determine that, but um, or if they want to publish the work that we've done. But um, I guess one kind of insight I've learned is that you know this machine learning it can't really predict anomalies very well in the data so at certain you know certain materials they you know you would look at materials 
let's say you have three materials, A, B, C. And let's say A, B, C are like very related materials, but like only minor changes in them. You know, but let's say um, A and C, you get, you know, results you were expecting, but then B has, material B has some, uh, you know, some uh, stability uh, measure very different from A and C. Even though all A, B, and C have very similar, like, structural um, elements to them, you know, you would expect all of them to have similar stability, but for some reason B doesn't have a good stability in it for whatever reason. And machine learning really, it's almost impossible for it to pick that up unless you have some crazy insane amount of data. Um, so that's one thing I've kind of learned is that it can't really do, it can't predict anomalies in the data. And um, I don't know if there's any way to get around that. But it's just something you have to be aware of, I guess, when you're doing these kinds of machine learning studies, is that you may not find the most interesting materials, you know, um, because the machine learning can't pick up those little, those fine, very fine details in the material. What What do you think about uh, the um, applying a, a larger data set and then uh, using deep learning instead where it tries to figure out the features and maybe, you know, find those fine, fine anomalies that are, are throwing, throwing off the prediction. Right. I mean, that would definitely be, um, something to look at. I've been kind of, you know, when I first started this project, I knew absolutely nothing about deep learning. And now that I'm, I'm actually doing another internship. I know we've talked previously about natural language processing and deep learning, I've kind of started to wonder, you know, what happened, what would happen or how would I even apply some deep learning techniques to uh, our data set, you know, our material science data set. And um, yeah, because it would, yeah, basically I'm just wondering how would I, I would even do that and if it would be possible to use you know, other people's data sets out there, train some models, deep learning models on it, and then maybe kind of do like a transfer learning task to our data set. Because our data set isn't very large, but if other people have data set, a data set, we have thousands of different materials. You know, could we use a deep learning model, you know, to help kind of do like a, uh, you know, transfer learning is, have you heard of that? Yeah. Yeah. So I was, that's kind of my um, curiosity right now for that project is to do some kind of transfer learning model. And then... I think that's, you know, kind of like the, that's kind of like the, uh, the existing model for deep learning is, uh, you know, if you look at Uber, or you look at, uh, uh, I was even talking to this guy on super, about super query and, and, uh, you know what they're everyone's trying to do is centralize the data you know get larger data sets so uh you know there's more data that can be collectively analyzed Uh Uh, because when you get the larger data sets uh uh the machine is actually does better at its performance with the larger data sets than with the smaller because uh Mm -hmm. just because of uh, it can 
you know, it can then start to classify better. It can, it can identify certain clusters of behaviors better. Um, you know, it, and then you could combine that with your machine learning, which then could be applied to making decisions. Um, it's kind of like we were talking about with the natural plot, the language processing too, is, uh, you know, one of the big problems with identifying uh, just kind of a, a tangent to the computational model, but is, uh, is trying to identify behavioral models and, you know, trying to see is this person, uh, you know, a borderline personality disorder? Do they have a bipolar personality? Do they have manic depression? I mean, these are all complex diagnostics to put in, in, in play. And uh, oftentimes if you have a therapist and they're analyzing uh, your behavior or, or individual's behavior or group of individual's behavior, um, they watch your, uh, they have you answer a series of questions. Uh, and basically based on the way you answer those questions, they can somewhat determine some clustering in terms of like, if we have uh, what group, group percentage of people would answer this question a certain way, almost like your computational model where you have uh a behavioral classification based on proximity to the answers to certain types of questions. Mm -hmm. And so it's almost like a transitional piece where you can say, Hey, I'm wondering if I could quantify uh, behavioral decisions and clustering of behavioral models based on the way people are answering these questions. Yeah, that's a really interesting um, proposition. You have to kind of cluster these groups of people together and then see what similarities they have. And that will ultimately, you know, help maybe the, the, the separate tasks, you know, and actually identifying is this person, have, you know, bipolar or PTSD, you know, and kind of if you can narrow down your search, you know, using that kind of unsupervised maybe uh, group grouping together. You know, then you can take maybe one person and say, okay, well, they're definitely in this group. So we just narrow down, you know, our search for what, you know, kind of diagnostic we can give them. And then from yeah, group, you, and you yeah. can and, and, and you can also get uh, a, a reinforcement learning too. So uh, you, you could do the classification that way using uh, the deep learning to identify which cluster that they belong or had similar traits to other people with that disorder uh, from a larger data population. And then uh, you could use a reinforcement feedback system where that person could identify as a positive or negative uh, to the system. So if you said, you know, do uh, do you exhibit these, do you feel this certain way or, you, you know, or you just type, just describe a certain characteristic. And if they give a strong positive sentiment back, then you know that that's a pretty good uh, feedback mechanism into the system. So then more, uh, the more interactions like where you're pulling from social network and you're getting different responses based on interactions or conversations, uh, then, uh, by the, the information not just flowing into the system, but the, the system also flowing information back out and then getting a reinforcement negative or positive, that could, uh, in a dynamic system, could be also very helpful too.
Yeah, I could definitely imagine that being a huge help, you know, into your overall model and to help maybe generalize it as well. Um, yeah, so I I think I actually have to uh, head out right now. Okay. But, yeah, let's, uh, we'll, we'll just uh, wrap that up. And uh, um, thanks again for, Sim, for sharing about the computational model. Yeah. I think you've definitely helped us understand more of, uh, of the importance of the features. If people want to talk to you, how would they best get a hold of you on LinkedIn? Yeah, they can definitely contact me on LinkedIn. That's probably the best way, um, easiest way to get a hold of me. And, and what, how would they do that? Um, what would... Uh, maybe you could, when you post this recording on your LinkedIn page, they can, you can maybe send a link to my profile. Or, I mean, they can message me right through LinkedIn. Or, right, yes, they can. I think I also have my email with um, okay that as well i think i got your i got your profile so i'll just put a link on that but thanks for uh, talking with us yeah absolutely thanks for having me again it's been a pleasure okay yeah you really uh you really brought a lot of light on to the the what you were originally saying i realized after i listened to it the last time that what you had described was something very very important about uh machine learning that i think a lot of people run into this problem which is they they hear about machine learning they want to go out there and make it work they want to make a difference in their company but they don't realize that those feature setups are so important and then the strategy for how like you came up with the idea of the geometries that was really brilliant because that was a key part to getting the right features and the right decisions being made so that then you could get the right conclusions and the right assumptions were being made. Yeah, absolutely. Um, feature extraction and feature determination is definitely, I would say, the most important part about the machine learning process. Okay. Well, thanks a lot. Yeah.